Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. One of the greatest challenges American military leaders have faced since the American Revolution has been how to motivate individual citizens to forego their own sense of private identity in favor of the collective group needed to wage war effectively. This problem becomes more acute in the 20th century when mass conscript armies were raised from a widely disparate American landscape of ethnic enclaves and highly localized regional communities. These challenges and the United States Army's response from the start of the Second World War through the Cold War until the end of the Vietnam War is the subject of Christopher DeRosa's book, Political Indoctrination in the U.S. Army from World War II to the Vietnam War. DeRosa investigates the cultures and mechanisms of creating political cohesion in the drafty army during the heyday of American conscription. Clearly an example of the so-called new military history, focusing on the intellectual and cultural legacy of a military institution, Chris DeRosa's book also represents just the sort of synthesis of military and social history that is at the core of the war and society approach, in that it places military institutions squarely within the context of the societies they serve. Hello, Chris. Hello, Dr. Wintermute. It's good to hear from you again, Chris. It's good to hear from you as well. Thanks for inviting me. So today we're talking with Christopher DeRosa, author of the book Political Indoctrination in the U.S. Army, from World War II to the Vietnam War. I've read Chris's book, and I do recommend it for anyone interested in how the Army sought to inculcate its citizen-soldier conscripts and volunteers with a sense of common identity and purpose during the heyday of conscription. While clearly an example of the so-called new military history, focusing on the intellectual and cultural legacy of a military institution, Krista Rose's book also represents just the sort of synthesis of military and social history that lies at the core of the war and society approach, in that it places military institutions squarely within the context of the societies they serve. Chris, can you say a few words about yourself and what led you to pursue this project? Um, absolutely. Uh, well, I am a student of Dr. Russell Wigley's uh, as um, uh, one of the, the deans of American uh, military history uh, when he was at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia, and uh, I'm now an associate professor of history at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey, where I teach courses on the Second World War, on the Cold War, on the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, and uh, on uh, United States political history. Um, I am uh, 
or was uh, recently done with being the uh, director of our master's program uh, here at Monmouth, uh, and uh, it, uh, it's, a, it's a great place to be. <laughs> uh, very enjoyable colleagues and uh, a, a terrific environment for, for scholars and for students. Um, and I've always been interested in uh, uh, military history and its nexus with political history. Uh, going back to my undergraduate days, uh, my uh, senior thesis was on uh, the uh, attempt to woo soldier votes uh, by the Republicans and the Democrats in the election of 1864, which is the first major election in which uh, active duty soldiers could vote. And uh, after working on that stuff and getting to graduate school, my interests migrated to the 20th century, and uh, I began working on a project about uh, kind of replicating this earlier project uh, that centered on the 1952 election. So I thought that would be a very interesting one to study uh, because uh, you had this recent wave of anger uh, uh, amongst uh, the nation's conservatives and uh, Republicans over Harry Truman's dismissal of Douglas MacArthur. And you had the commander-in-chief's party, although not, not the commander-in-chief himself, running uh, uh, on one side of the ticket and a very popular military figure in General Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, running on the other side of the ticket. And I very much wanted to see where the military would kind of come down in trying to influence that vote one way or another uh, as it prepared materials to allow soldiers to vote. And what I found out pretty quickly was that uh, the military is very scrupulous about, uh, or especially was in the 1950s, uh, about playing it straight down the middle, uh, uh, showing no favoritism to the two major political parties in uh, matters pertaining to elections. And... Um, uh, that's a, uh, an interesting, you know, or an important point in itself. But I also wanted to get a bigger picture of how uh, the uh, military and the government who holds the military reins uh, try to use the engines of, of opinion making to influence its soldiers. And that was the genesis of this project. But in the beginning of the book, you raise the prospect of a um, innate incompatibility for many Americans when it comes to the subject of military service, or at least a disconnect that lasted until the transition to the all-volunteer force in the 1970s. Can you describe this in greater detail for our listeners? Are you speaking of the uh, uh, a conflict in, in uh, uh, the sort of in individuals' uh, right to sort of have their way and make your own way in the world and the concept of, of national service or required service? No, I'm thinking more of a deep-seated cultural antipathy um, reaching back to the colonial period. Uh, well, you know, um, it, it's a, uh, there's a dilemma, uh, of course, for uh, Americans that we pride ourselves on, especially within our military tradition. And um, you go back to the Revolutionary War, uh, there's a story uh, frequently cited whenever you, you want to say anything political to uh, the Army or uh, tell the Army to do anything whatsoever, that uh, Baron von Steuben uh, was supposed to have said that uh, 
German soldiers, you could tell them what to do and they would do it. American soldiers, you have to tell them why uh, they have to do something and then they'll do it. Um, this is probably apocryphal. Uh, we don't know that Steuben, uh, Steuben actually said this, uh, but, but it's so self-flattering uh, that it you know, continues to be uh, trotted out on occasion. Uh, the Americans don't like to think that they've surrendered uh, any fundamental aspects of their freedom in serving, uh, uh, in the military, and, and yet this, is, of course, is uh, uh, is a bit of a dilemma. And how the society uh, manages to finesse that dilemma, uh, you can see in a, in a number of ways. And I'll give you just one. Um, at the beginning of the program, you uh, uh, talked about how the book is located in the conscription era, and you use the phrase conscripts and conscription. And in fact, in my original manuscript, I use those phrases interchangeably with draftee conscript and draftee, because conscript is not a pejorative term as far as I'm concerned. Um, one person who read the manuscript, though, was very upset uh, at, at that uh, use of that word because he felt it had a, a strong negative connotation. A conscript uh, was was not uh, uh, what these American draftees were. Uh, conscript implied that uh, somehow to this person that it meant unwilling conscript. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. And I agreed with this person enough to, to sort of remove the term conscript so I could be clear that uh, to be drafted in the 20th century or to wait to be drafted uh, did not carry uh, necessarily a negative connotation. It might in certain families, in certain military traditionally, families with military traditions, uh, you don't maybe wait to get drafted. But in general, no one's manhood is on the line uh, if you sort of wait to get drafted, uh, and if, as long as you're sort of serving willingly and cheerfully once you do that. The surrounding of the draft with patriotic rituals uh, kind of brought, it was kind of a way of bridging uh, this dilemma that you're talking about with uh, uh, one's individual uh, uh, you know, control of one's destiny and, and the idea of, of having to uh, buy into a, a community's orders. What were the antecedents for the type of political indoctrination you, you describe as taking shape in World War II? Well, the most important antecedents uh, are really come around with the French Revolution. Uh, when we try to give an American origin to this, what we're usually what we'll get back to is Thomas Paine. Uh, when the Continental Army is fleeing uh, across New Jersey uh, and uh, uh, is about to uh, pivot after uh, crossing the Delaware and, and uh, turn back, you know, Thomas Paine uh, has written uh, some inspirational words for the army, which George Washington uh, has. Uh, uh, has uh, read aloud to the troops, actually, who are going back across the Delaware uh, the other way. And this includes, uh, of course, uh, uh, the Times that Try Men's Souls crisis paper. Uh, and uh, everybody knows the beginning of that. These are the Times that cry, uh, Try Men's Souls. The end uh, was especially uh, more troop indoctrination uh, uh, oriented that if we don't do this, then uh, we, our, you know these Hessians are going to have their way with our women. I'm, I'm not using his exact words. Uh, and we're going to be the race. Uh, uh, we're going to give birth to a race on this continent whose fathers uh, they shall doubt of. Meaning, you know, did our fathers have courage? And are our fathers even are our fathers, or are they these German mercenaries? Uh, so, it's sort of a you know sexual threat uh, uh, propaganda to get the troops up. And uh, yet, 
this is not really systematic indoctrination. Uh, this is merely commanders uh, are trying to inspire troops with material that's on hand in a kind of ad hoc basis uh, that we can look back to Thucydides, you know, and, and see uh, commanders trying to psych up their troops, uh, be, you know, by calling on the traditions of the city and, and uh, uh, playing upon images of one's manhood. What you get really systematic about this is in the French Revolution. Uh, during the French Revolution, you have a, a mass mobilized army and you have an insecure revolutionary government that wants to use uh, the power of uh, popular communication to secure loyalty to uh, a, a shaky uh, uh, you know, a shaky government that didn't have the traditions of uh, monarchy to, to fall back on for its legitimacy. So here we actually start to get uh, systematized messages sent to the to, sent out to uh, the, the armed forces. Uh, people being told, you know, in each and every camp, you do this, you tell the troops this. This is what these are the songs we want you to sing. These are the banners we want you to fly, uh, and these are the speeches we want you to make. That uh, was the first systematized effort. When you add to that idea of uh, that, that a mass army must be uh, dealt with in this kind of managerial way, when you add to that modern communications technologies come of, come of age in the early 20th century, then you have the United States' effort in World War I, which involved mass printing, film, and uh, uh, rapid distribution methods to be able to get out messages to the troops and uh, very much in common with the French Revolution uh, and those forces of about 110 years earlier, the American army in World War I believed that the troops' opinion was not something you left to the charisma of the officers uh, or uh, to their own political calculations, but rather uh, opinion ought to be managed. And that was very much also within the progressive era's ethos that uh, you could improve life by organizing it. Was political indoctrination the sole objective for, for these early reformers, or do you think they were fulfilling other agendas as well? You mean, well, you know, uh, once you have opened these channels of communication, uh, you can start pouring in all kinds of content, uh, and uh, a communication system can start serving various agendas. At the core, why would the nation be willing to do this? Why would our society be willing to say, okay, our soldiers' opinions ought to be managed? Well, the only legitimate reason really would be to pursue victory, uh, to pr produce uh, a willingness to do battle on part of, uh, of the cause that the government has established and to win and to better motivate the troops to win. But <laughs> that's the slipperiest uh, conclusion that you could possibly come to as to, uh, as to whether this actually works or not. Can you actually motivate somebody to want to fight? Um, you know, only a little, really. Uh, for the most part, uh, we have a very strong instinct of self-preservation, and the things that motivate us uh, uh, to risk our lives are uh, uh, generally not grafted onto us at age 22 or age 24 uh, by a few hours of political lectures. Uh, they are things that are formed uh, much, much deeper and have to go, go deeply into our sources of shame and our sources of, of love uh, and our sense of community. Uh, that are developed from you know the time that you're six, seven years old on. 
So what does this stuff do? Instead, it can become a vehicle for these other agendas. And of course, in World War One, uh, the progressives you know, have a grand old time uh, saying to the United States Army, "Well, we can we can practice upon this captive audience uh, a, a number of, of projects. Uh, one of which uh, was to discourage." Uh, uh, sexual contact uh, during their time in in the military. Uh, it was obviously hoped that uh, soldiers would avoid venereal diseases so that they would not be uh, taken out of combat that way. Uh, but there was also a very stern moralizing uh, kind of quality to this where uh, they hoped that if they, they could occupy soldiers with patriotic thoughts, that they could suppress the sex impulse itself. Uh, that's a literal quote. We must suppress the sex impulse itself, uh, which I, I, I imagine didn't work that often. Um, uh, but they tried to get rid of dirty pictures, uh, close dancing. They tried to scare the camp followers away from the camps uh, uh, and, subtract, uh, and subject troops to kind of a morally cleansing environment. Uh, they uh, were against profanity uh, and uh, they were also uh, trying to promote an anti-socialist message. Um, here, we, we see an example of, of a kind of conservative brand of progressivism. Progressive today, of course, is, is sort of a byword for uh, liberals who no longer want to be called liberals because, because that term somehow become pejorative. Uh, but, of course, progressives were more about an ethos and an approach than a particular set of politics. And uh, from a conservative point of view, taking a large number of men under arms and teaching them uh, to respect industrial authority and the importance of capitalism could perhaps make them, after the war, into a docile uh, uh, industrial labor force. And uh, that message began to creep into the propaganda given to our troops in uh, the end of the, uh, you know, in that last year uh, in which the United States was involved in the second I'm sorry, in the First World War, and then in the the interwar years as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting in all of this how the First World War appears to be the first real serious effort to create this sense of citizenship among soldiers. You know, the idea of um, people from different communities, ethnic communities across the country, shedding those identities to become Americanized. Is um, this a new development related to the, the war itself, or is it connected to other political and social forces uh, resident in American society at the time? Um, that's a good point. Uh, you know, we're in the same, very same years in which uh, uh, public figures are railing against the idea of hyphenated Americans, uh, in which the the image of the melting pot uh, is being invoked again and again. And of course, we have a benign view of the idea of the melting pot now. It's sort of gotten the uh, uh, the uh, schoolhouse rock treatment. Uh, and we kind of, kind of think very nicely about melting pots, but when you think about a melting pot, it's really a violent image. Uh, we're going to be melting you down <laughs> and uh, building something else out of you. Uh, melting away your, your essential characteristics. 
Um, the army on the surface, you know, uh, these indoctrination programs uh, definitely sort of contain those messages, but there were countervailing messages uh, being given to these troops as well. Uh, and those include some accommodation of the fact that there would be units where English was not the primary language spoken. And instead of, of throwing up their hands and, and uh, sort of insisting that, that uh, uh, these troops are going to be Americanized, there's some practical realization that, you know what, we're going to deal with these troops in their native tongue, and we're going to try to, uh, uh, despite the, you know, the, the current rhetoric of uh, anti-hyphenating Americans, uh, we're going to try to actually inculcate pride on the basis of you being German Americans or Irish Americans or Italian Americans. Um, so that, that did get a little blunted in, in practice just due to practical considerations. Interesting. Counterintuitive, but, but interesting. You also know how, in your book, how prior historians have focused on the primary group dynamic as the chief motivating factor for American soldiers in wartime. Does this render the concept of political motivation somewhat outdated? Oh, well, you know, um, uh, I'm sure most people who are listening would be familiar with the, the primary group theory of, of combat motivation, um, but uh, just in case you're not, uh, the idea here is that uh, men essentially uh, will fight only for uh, their buddies, that uh, in the heat of actual battle, abstract concepts of the nation, of the home front, uh, however the soldier might believe in these things in, in another moment, when they're out in the field, isolated from, from these other influences, influences of their community, what you're really going to fight for is the men upon whom you've relied and who rely upon you. And this is essentially a, a kind of a, 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 a love beyond description, but also a transaction. Uh, that these bonds are, are uh, almost at the pinnacle of human bonding, uh, and yet there's also a very hard uh, calculation here that, that I must risk my life for these men who are also obligated to risk their life for me, uh, because that is the only way we are going to get through this experience. And it was actually within the the auspices of uh, the American information programs in World War II, particularly its research branch, which produced the famous multi-volume uh, uh, studies of the American soldier headed by Stan Samuel Stouffer, uh, a sociologist, and his uh, team, that gave credence to the idea that, no, it's not that flag-waving, it's not patriotism, it's not baseball, and it's not apple pie that makes uh, the American soldiers go, uh, it's this reliance on buddies. And the American soldier, the World War II research came out of uh, uh, studying uh, uh, the, uh, U.S. soldiers, concluded that, that really uh, soldiers are quite laconic, and in fact they would even mock or even sometimes punish overtly patriotic fellows. So going in, going out of the, the Second World War, uh, very much uh, the hip opinion uh, in, in terms of how troops were to be motivated was to rely upon these primary group ties uh, and to kind of poo-poo the idea that uh, you had to uh, stoke up the troops by uh, uh, giving them the rationale of the war. And 
after the non-repatriate scandal in the Korean War, uh, after the failure of the Vietnam War, people began to question whether that conclusion was all that accurate. Uh, the biggest problem with the primary group is that if the primary group prioritizes its own survival over the accomplishment of war aims, then all those, all that tight-knit bonding that you're relying upon begins to work against you, you in the position of the commander. Uh, if you have decided that for the purposes of the war, we must go take this hill, uh, and the soldiers have decided based on their primary group bonds that, you know, that's not a good idea uh, and that's not worth it, uh, they can use their their uh, fellowship uh, really to block out the wishes of their commanders. And particularly after the Vietnam War, uh, the primary group means of motivation began to become qualified. And people said, well, maybe this is the most important thing uh, in terms of why soldiers fight it. But if the primary group does not have an underlying sense that their country is in the right, and it doesn't have to be much more articulated than that, but this basic idea that you're the good guys, uh, then the primary group cannot be used to, to further the, you know, to motivate uh, uh, troops towards victory. That is interesting, Chris. I can't help but think, though, about how that conclusion runs counter to so much of what you know our, our culture has manifested about the the primacy of the group of buddies under stress. You know, the the band of brothers syndrome that seems to dominate um, the popular media construction of Americans at war today. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we in one way, I guess, in, in our popular culture, uh, we've favored uh, uh, stories, movies, where the primary group is cynical uh, about war aims, that we, we like the realism of that, and we've come to embrace the rifleman's war. And that in, enlightened us in some ways, you know, when we, when we were mostly caught up in, in what Patton and Eisenhower did and what, you know, what kind of revolvers they had and, you know, you know, who were they, they, uh, you know, who were they sweet on, uh, and, and things like that. Uh, maybe we got a little bit away from, uh, some kind of intimate knowledge of, of the men who fought. And most importantly with saving private Ryan, but with all the other phenomena that you've, you've named, uh, we're forced back into confrontation with that rifleman's war. And that was educational in one way. Uh, but, um, we may, may have, uh, focused on that, uh, uh, at the expense of, of uh, maybe maybe thinking about some other uh, uh, criticisms of that model. You know, I wonder if we could also argue that the War Department's concern with political indoctrination was partially a knee-jerk response to fears of Nazi and Imperial Japanese militarism and the effect that would create on uh, their soldiers. I mean, was George Marshall or uh, other figures in the War Department, were they concerned that the German or Japanese soldier was somehow more warlike than the American citizen soldier, and that there was thus a pressing need to convince Americans to fight? 
never read anything that that would make me think that Marshall uh, or a comparable figure, you know, Roosevelt or Eisenhower, uh, thought of it in those kind of comparative terms uh, that we're less motivated than the enemy. That would be a frequent trope of the com- you know the anti-communist period that the communists were so much better motivated than than the Americans was a fear of anti-communists. You didn't really have that fear necessarily. What they were responding to especially was a very specific situation in which uh, the draft class of 1940 was due to uh, uh, graduate, you know, due to uh, have their draft expire, uh, their their service expire, and instead it was going to have to be renewed. And uh, there were a lot of disgruntled people uh, who felt that they had kept their end of the bargain. They had served in 1940. Uh, you know, fortunately for them, the, the war hadn't come, uh, but they'd still been greatly inconvenienced. Uh, you had a, a robust economy uh, uh, that uh, was was shaking off the depression uh, due to the gear up for for the war, and there's a great desperation to participate in that economy. And here, to be told, no, you know, your moment of danger is not yet over, uh, and uh, your chance to get into that, that burgeoning economy and to get out from military discipline, that's going to be postponed. Uh, people who felt themselves very much patriots uh, uh, and, and you know, very much willing to serve under the initial terms felt double-crossed. And uh, uh, resentment at uh, perhaps being in the Army longer than the initial period of enlistment uh, was the immediate trigger to engage the attention of George Marshall, who was the Army Chief of Staff at the time, uh, and uh, uh, have the the resources of the Army, of, of uh, the Roosevelt administration, turned towards this question of placating not so much placating as as winning over or explaining uh, to these soldiers why they were going to have to stay in service. And that very much meant explaining the world situation. What exactly was the infrastructure for political indoctrination in the Army? During the war, well, the uh, at the beginning, uh, it went through about uh, a number of different name changes, but uh, at the outset... The first thing, uh, impulse was to say, well, what did we do in World War One? Let's pick up that model and revitalize that. World War One had had uh, a fairly ambitious effort uh, to propagandize uh, American soldiers very thoroughly uh, and to really invade sort of every aspect of, of their ideational life. World War Two. Uh, the uh, head said, well, we would like to draw on that talent, but we don't want to go quite so far. They more have conceived of it as, as basically a morale-boosting element. Who are these soldiers who are talking about going, quote, Ohio over the hill in October when their draft terms expired? They are disgruntled people who need a morale boost. Uh, so the Special Services Division is created uh, to administer to the morale of the U.S. Army. And within the Special Services Division, there are multiple branches seeing to various aspects of morale, and three of them had to do with with information and education. And uh, what they called information and education included orienting troops. Uh, It included uh, providing educational opportunities for morale purposes, uh, and it included 
non-political information, such as uh, how do you fill out your paperwork, uh, how do you uh, make a medical claim, or you know how do you get money to your family if there's an emergency, things of that nature. So they all kind of address the aspects of morale. Now, at the actual unit level, what you would have uh, is you'd have some officer on the staff of the commander uh, as an information officer. And an information officer is basically under the, you know, he's not outside the, the command structure. They're under command of, of who's ever in command of the unit. Uh, they are not political commissars with, with tremendous power. Uh, they are probably much less powerful than a chaplain, uh, for example. And sometimes uh, these jobs are given to officers, frankly, for whom uh, the commander did not have any other use. Uh, one uh, uh, commander of the Second World War said, if you can't run a mess, if you can't, you know, clean a sock or fill a balloon, you know, if you can't lead a troop, we'll, 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 we'll give you the information job. I, I often think that if I had been in, in the war uh, or, or in any war, I probably would have been an information officer on this basis. Um, you sometimes got people who could read and write uh, and uh, were comfortable talking to groups. But uh, it was essentially the job of this person either to help the commander or to himself speak to the troops on a weekly basis for about 50 minutes uh, about the topic of the day. Uh, and that topic might be something that's of particular concern to the troops, or it might have been the latest thing that the Germans have done and the latest thing that the Japanese have done. Uh, it almost never worked like it was designed to work. Uh, units that faithfully ca carried out the weekly meetings were few and far between. Um, some commanders would, would pursue it, uh, especially because it maybe gave a, a break from you know, from, from hard training, uh, you could sort of say, okay, well, we can come off the line a little bit and, and uh, uh, relax with, with 50 minutes of, of this stuff. But for most units, uh, especially the further you got from, from uh, uh, the United States, the continental United States, the less often they, these things were actually going to happen. Uh, so that's the field aspect of it. Then back at, at home, uh, you have a collection of civilian talents brought into the Special Services Division to do their thing. This is a big feature of World War II. Um, uh, you know, baseball players uh, uh, were, you know, basically put in uniform and told to play baseball. Uh, uh, filmmakers uh, were put in, in uniform and told to make films. Uh, radio announcers and soap opera actors were put in uniform and told to make soap operas and radio shows. Um, there's a large number of names you would probably know. Uh, Theodore Geisel, who's Dr. Seuss. Um, William Shire, um, uh, who wrote uh, uh, The uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, um, uh, served as information, well, not necessarily information officers, but, uh, uh, but as uh, lending their special talents to uh, the Special Services Division to craft materials for distribution. And uh, the overall head of the organization in World War II uh, was a man named Frederick Osborne, who, interestingly enough, had been the former president of the American Eugenics Society. 
And this is, you know, strikes us today as a very odd choice uh, for somebody who's going to go out and give an anti-fascist, uh, anti-master race message, uh, a pluralistic democratic message uh, uh, to speak to an army, uh, a polyglot army. Uh, why would you get a eugenicist? Well, to, to understand why, you, you have to say you have to understand that the eugenics movement had been under Osborne in the 1930s rapidly backing away from any association with master race theories in, in Germany and had taken up an anti-Nazi position. And no eugenics uh, uh, arguments ever really filtered into uh, the American pop, you know, propaganda effort in the Second World War. Uh, Osborne played it very you know, straight. Uh, I contrast him in the book his choice was sort of the old army choice. It was he, he was the sort of guy that interwar the interwar army respected as an intellect uh, and uh, a good type of person to, to organize things. Uh, but it, it, the army that they were creating in World War II, uh, you could identify more strongly with one of the people that uh, they brought into Special Services Division, the most famous uh, being Frank Capra, uh, the director of, of many popular films, most. Famously, at that point, he had done uh, It Happened One Night with Claudia Colbert and Clark Gable uh, in 1934, a famous you know, road movie, which more or less invented the genre of romantic comedies uh, in, in our, our films. And Capra was brought in uh, to uh, uh, make the propaganda films that would be palatable to a wide range of Americans. Um, well, I don't know that there's an average soldier. Uh, you know, with with 12 million men under arms at any one time, and uh, 1,600, or I'm sorry, 16 million, you know, for the entire war. Uh, naturally, you can find every type of response there is uh, in the memoirs of soldiers. Um, so, uh, you know, you won't be surprised, you know, to, to have me tell you that. Some soldiers rejected this propaganda outright. They said, this is propaganda. I won't be propagandized. Uh, I'm not for this. There were soldiers uh, who loved it, uh, who had fond memories, especially of Capra's films. Uh, there were soldiers who felt it did not go far enough. Uh, I quote one soldier of Eastern European descent in the book who was already a strident anti-communist because he'd escaped from Eastern Europe. Uh, and... Uh, uh, had you know a much closer inkling of what was going on in the Soviet Union, uh, and thinking there was not nearly as enough anti-communism uh, in uh, this these works, because naturally the United States wasn't saying anything nasty about the Soviet Union and its propaganda during World War II. Uh, it was rather trying to cultivate respect for this ally to make uh, people understand that the United States might have to give the Soviets a great deal of money, for example, uh, or loan them equipment. Uh, so it wasn't really in their interests. Some anti-communists very much keyed on that even during the war. Uh, some troops felt, uh, I think this was, was an interesting reaction, said, yeah, we knew it was propaganda, but we liked it anyway. And that's particularly, uh, I think, uh, attributable to Frank Capra's film. You think about It's a Wonderful Life, right, which is, is on every Christmas, and and many people you know have seen it many you know multiple times. And maybe I, I hope I'm not speaking only to to the people I, I guess who who've seen that film, but if I could speak to them for a minute, think about it. You know you're being manipulated by Frank Capra 
and you like it anyway. I would assume, right? I mean, if you're watching it more than once at this late date, uh, you, you know it's kind of cornball, uh, but uh, you're willing to buy in. And that's why he was a great choice as a propagandist, uh, because uh, it's not deceptive. Uh, you know your heartstrings are being played on a little bit, uh, and yet you accept it. You're willing to roll with it because it, it's given to you just sweet enough uh, that it goes down easy. Uh, so that was an, uh, a reaction that, that many troops had. It's interesting to single out certain types of troops. Japanese-American troops, uh, for example, I didn't find many quotations from them uh, with high regard for uh, the propaganda effort. Uh, more often, yeah, more often, you know, they're sort of marveling at themselves for having bought into a larger propaganda atmosphere uh, that they had to somehow prove themselves to a nation that had proven so disloyal to them. Uh, you know, that, and yet it, it was somehow up to them to, to provide the proof uh, of loyalty. And that didn't come from any wartime materials, but, but from some kind of larger uh, uh, community, you know, sense of, of, uh, of community. Um, there were some special efforts made uh, to try to address African-American troops. And uh, one film by Capra, The, the Negro Soldier, tried uh, uh, to inculcate pride for uh, African-American forces, uh, but also uh, to provide a kind of lesson in teamwork and, and tolerance uh, for uh, uh, any white uh, for uh, troops who were viewing the film. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you will get uh, quotations from from black soldiers occasionally, uh, you know, again marveling at at uh, uh, the simplicity of this propaganda and how it did not address uh, the the what they regarded as the real American situation. You know, another question comes to mind about the actual people who are involved in this work. Um, did you find any examples of individuals who sought to use their position? to promote their own political agenda? It, it, um, yes, uh, frequently. Um, uh, in many ways, harmlessly, and in a couple of ways, uh, really overboard. When I began the project, I imagined that anyone who would take the propaganda job must be sort of ideologically committed. I may... Uh, 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 you can call your your attention to there's an episode of MASH uh, back in uh, uh, the Frank Burns years uh, uh, when uh, uh, they portrayed, and I, I believe this is the only fictional portrayal of this that, that, that's out there, they, they portrayed an actual troop information session on this episode of MASH in which uh, the Frank Burns character is giving an anti-communist lecture and Hawkeye Pierce, the wise you know, Weisenheimer doctor, uh, is uh, uh, the only member of the audience uh, because he's trying to stay up all night or something like this. And uh, and he, uh, you know, kind of heckles Frank uh, from the back of the room. And I almost imagine, although I would not seen this episode at the time, I, I almost imagine that must be what it was like. You know, anti-communist lecturers, uh, uh, you know, preaching to troops whose political commitment was much, much lesser uh, or took them with a great deal of skepticism, took these politicized figures. In actuality, there were probably more Hawkeyes in front of the room than there were Franks. Uh, 
a uh, the political indoctrination job, the information officer job, seemed to attract uh, a, a kind of uh, a, an iconoclastic person at the unit level. At the unit level, uh, you would. Uh, uh, have uh, you have accounts of uh, indoctrination leaders uh, who constantly question the material uh, that they've been given by the army or the Pentagon, uh, who uh, punched it up and made it funny uh, for their troops, tried to entertain uh, with their lectures, and uh, kind of put on an air of skepticism uh, about the whole thing. You also had a reaction about that. The first inclination that there was going to be a big uh, anti-communist and also con- you know, politically conservative reaction against the uh, uh, troop indoctrination efforts came when Winston Churchill, uh, when his party was not reelected uh, in 1945 promptly dismissed by British electorate. Churchill famously, you know, famously wrote, uh, and. Uh, Observers said, you know, part of the reason Churchill lost is our pinko troop indoctrinators have been telling our our troops to uh, vote uh, uh, labor, and uh, they're subversives. American conservatives in the army uh, began to say, you know what, you know who's who, who's taking these jobs as uh, information lecturers. Uh, in the words of one intelligence officer, they said these are subversives and cowards. Uh, it's a haven for liberals who are, you know, uh, proto-communists. And these charges uh, often, you know, boil down to nothing more than uh, the idea that uh, 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 there were liberals amongst the troop indoctrinators, and that the troop indoctrination program, the troop and it was officially called the Troop Information and Education Program, uh, was putting out a message of racial tolerance. That was enough uh, to raise the hackles of, of conservatives. Uh, racial tolerance they they seeing as as the potential uh, uh, underminer of uh, what they considered uh, proper American values. Uh, so the counter reaction then from the top, uh, and by the top I mean usually uh, the Pentagon officer in charge of the services individual programs was uh, uh, to try to increase the anti-communist stridency of the program. And when a strident anti-communism entered the uh, uh, the program in the mid-50s, there was always anti-communist, but, but uh, you know, since the Second World War, uh, but uh, you began begin to get these, these harsher measures uh, around 1955 and, and afterward, um, this encouraged uh, uh, officers who may have been, uh, m- you know, not merely conservative, but, but uh, uh, ultra-conservative, uh, or members of the radical right, depending on, you know, on what term you think is, is most appropriate, uh, to sometimes politicize themselves to come out uh, against uh, the sitting Democratic administrations uh, and uh, uh, especially to decry uh, the nation's seeming acceptance of uh, continued communist domination of Eastern Europe. Uh, this boiled over when the most extreme views of uh, some officers were manifest in uh, the commander of the 24th Division stationed in Augsburg in West Germany uh, in 1961, uh, a man named Edwin Walker, 
Major General Edwin Walker, uh, began to indoctrinate his troops with a, a program called uh, Pro Blue. Pro Blue uh, was allegedly uh, a positive program in contrast to an anti-red program, you see. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, uh, on paper, it was sort of like a political indoctrination taken very seriously. Uh, Walker was not just going to go through the motions. He assigned a large number of personnel uh, to doing uh, speeches, lectures, loudspeaker vans, pamphlets, uh, a whole layer of material generated by uh, the uh, offices of the 24th Division to not only its members, but also to the civilian friends and families of uh, the 24th Division, including their German friends. Uh, right, in Germany. And uh, more than worse than anything else, uh, Walker began giving speeches to his division's parent-teacher association, to the PTA. So military personnel, uh, their spouses, uh, and their their teachers, uh, their children's teachers. And the message that Walker put out uh, in some of his speeches uh, was uh, basically an endorsement of uh, a voting guide uh, prepared by the John Birch Society, uh, having, you know, sort of saying you ought to vote for these ultra-conservative candidates. Uh, and uh, he, uh, you know, uh, attacked the Kennedy administration as being weak on communism. Uh, this is right after the Bay of Pigs, so the Kennedy administration was especially sensitive uh, to criticism at this moment. Uh, and he also threw in some gratuitous things, like he called Eleanor Roosevelt and Harry Truman pinkos. As well as Samuel Yorty, the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, and uh, also some of his superiors in the Department of Defense. And this be- created a, a public scandal, uh, and this uh, resulted in Walker being recalled, and uh, uh, he resigned to go into politics. Edwin Walker. Um, turned up later uh, on the campus of the University of Mississippi uh, when Ole Miss was, uh, into when James Meredith was integrating uh, the school. And uh, there was chaos that had broken out uh, due to a racist reaction against uh, Meredith's integration on the campus of Ole Miss. And there, uh, uh, to the surprise, to the shock of the Kennedy administration, uh, was Edwin Walker. And uh, in a way, is very lamentable about Walker's career because Walker had actually won praise uh, as one of the commanders involved in the integration of Little Rock High School in Arkansas back in 1955. Uh, he squandered those laurels here at Ole Miss, uh, claiming that Meredith was the Antichrist come to destroy uh, the University of Mississippi and the United States generally, uh, at which point uh, he uh, then... Uh, ran for governor of Texas on the Democratic uh, uh, ticket. Um, and uh, strangely enough, I, I should back up, when, when Kennedy heard that Walker was there uh, on the campus, uh, you know, he remarked to his aides, he said, can, can you believe that that son of a bitch was a major general <laughs> at a division? Uh, and his the Kennedy advisors were kind of laughing, and they said, well, you know, uh, he's like uh, – you know, it, 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 he's, he's like uh, uh, the Burt Lancaster character in uh, uh, the, mil- the military coup movie, Seven Days in May. 
And Kennedy said, you know, I didn't really like the president in that movie. He wasn't very good. Uh, and it goes out of Kennedy's mind at that point. Uh, but tragically, uh, the men are linked once again. Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, in a resident of Texas, attempted to assassinate Governor Walker, I mean, uh, uh, rather, uh, candidate Walker, uh, and, uh, uh, did not kill Walker, but apparently grazed him and was later found that he had been using the same rifle, which he eventually used to assassinate Kennedy uh, in November of, of 1963. Uh, so a, a weird linkage between those two guys, you know, once again. Amazing. You know, you, you note that between Korea and Vietnam, uh, the military's efforts mirror those taking place in the larger civilian world and promoting what we describe as a robust Americanism, a civic religion based on rituals of participation. Um, yeah, this is also a period of dramatic civic upheaval in the United States. I mean, particularly with reference to civil rights and, you know, of course, the rise of the, the McCarthyite uh, virulent anti-communist discourse in domestic politics. Can you describe how it's possible to frame any sort of political consensus within this environment? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it eventually, you can't. <laughs> eventually, it breaks down. Uh, in the 50s, you could try. Uh, in the 1950s, um, uh, when I say you know rituals of participation, I'm I'm really kind of trying to point out anti-communists did not allow you just to be sort of passively anti-communist. Sitting on the sidelines was was not always an option uh, for Americans in these years. They were being constantly cajoled to participate, to come to meetings, to affirm your anti-communism. Uh, and uh, this you know, was regarded sort of an irritation by a lot of Americans. Uh, but uh, it was a kind of a constant claim on their attention in these years. And yet, uh, the very fear of communism demanded somehow that Americans collect a series of ideas that unified them uh, as a response. They didn't feel this need to respond to fascism in this way. Fascism w was, you know, you're at war with it, by the time you're arguing with it. Communism, there is no war taking place of the argument, and the communists were making claims that were somehow rooted in the, the Western tradition of values. Uh, in particular, you know, claims of, of humanity and, and, uh, and equality. Uh, the uh, Arn uh, Ad Westad, uh, who wrote uh, The Global Cold War, uh, one time compared the you know, uh, the, the two empires of the United States' empire and uh, the Soviet empire is uh, the United States being the empire of liberty and the Soviets being the empire of justice. Well, not many Americans thought that was a real, you know, that, that you know, the Soviets really were an empire of justice, but the claim was out there. And therefore, you had felt this need to answer it in a way that you didn't need to answer before. So how do you answer uh, uh, this in terms of an American consensus when the communists are taking pot shots at, at uh, American hypocrisies on race, uh, on uh, pointing out uh, a poverty amidst wealth in Western countries. So you get uh, a forging of, of uh, this kind of consensus in the 50s, and I'll give you a couple of examples. 
certain positions we would regard as basically being liberal positions win out. All this anti-communist stuff is not essentially conservative. It's essentially a fusion between liberal and conservative values. Liberal values, for example, include interventionism, uh, the idea that the United States is going to be an active, constant part of the world, uh, that the United States has a responsibility to other countries, to international systems beyond national interests. These are liberal values. These are not really, you know, conservative values would place the nation state first and then kind of go forward from there. Um, so that wins. A second one is the idea of unions. Now, here we are in a country today where we have about 12% of our of our um, workforce unionized, uh, and uh, unions are under fire, you know, all over the country. Um, but at the time, uh, in the 50s, uh, it was closer to, I, I believe, about uh, over a third of the workforce was unionized, and uh, unions are enjoying considerable political popularity. Uh, U.S. material said, we uh, propaganda materials that we accept unions. Unions are our solution to labor capital problems, which we have left behind us. We now have unions and management to make the small adjustments we need uh, uh, to keep everything fair and to keep everything going. Conservative values are more obvious in some ways in the program, uh, emphasizing individual responsibility um, uh, and uh, military traditions. But uh, around this, uh, and religion also, uh, contrasting uh, uh, the uh, uh, Soviets were, uh, and communists were officially atheist uh, with the United States uh, um, uh, being a Judeo-Christian country. The very phrase Judeo-Christian country uh, is something that gets emphasized a lot in the 1950s as opposed to later. I'm sorry, as opposed to earlier, uh, when there would be actual friction between uh, Catholics, Jews, and, and Protestants. Moving forward in the 50s to build consensus, you say, well, no, we, we are all Judeo-Christians. Well, we include all these groups, and it's more important that all three of us are anti-communist than any differences we might have amongst ourselves. So you begin to get this idea that there's a consensus set of values that's being run out there. The most contentious issue in the 50s was uh, race relations. To what degree uh, could the military endorse any kind of consensus on race when the country was obviously deeply divided uh, on race? And the military took the position that uh, it's, it, it supported the idea uh, that uh, white people and black people could work together, uh, but that the army itself was not an engine of social change in the South. Well, that just wouldn't cut it for very long. As you move into the 60s, a couple of things happen. The Walker scandal and the waning of McCarthyism and Hooverism uh, in, in the uh, 1960s, uh, a more detached analytical view of, of anti-communism uh, than the emotional one you had in the 50s uh, comes to the fore. The Kennedy administration liked to say, hey, there's no place here for amateur anti-communists, for people looking for communists under their bed and things like that. Instead, we're going to be these sophisticated analysts uh, who attack uh, uh, the communists at their pressure points in, in the third world. Uh, we're not going to run around with our heads you know, kind of uh, cut off. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be altogether more serious. The Walker scandal 
which is some minor one in, in the political events of the, of the 1950s, although important to me, uh, you know, and, and uh, to the story of political indoctrination, also cools off the ardor uh, uh, that uh, Congress had uh, and the right wing had uh, for uh, uh, for. Uh, uh, forwarding a an aggressive indoctrination of the troops. So moving into the 60s, the political consensus that they'd forged in the 50s was jeopardized by uh, uh, the obvious divisions over civil rights. Uh, you didn't have the anti-communist impulse at the same intensity uh, to overcome that. And the, the indoctrination program becomes less and less political. By the time you get to the Vietnam War, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force are arguing openly that, hey, we shouldn't be involved in shaping people's political opinions, which is very much not their attitude you know, in the 1950s. The Pentagon still felt that they had a role to play, and the Pentagon leadership still saw things in terms of the anti-communist impulse. But there, even the services underneath them you know, weren't, weren't there. Is it safe to say the propaganda mission or the propaganda effort became confused in Vietnam then? You know, lost between indoctrination on the one hand and public relations on the other? Yeah, I mean, uh, commanders became quite fearful, uh, although they really had no reason to fear that, they, that a Ted Walker would be done to them. Uh, they nevertheless oftentimes felt that, hey, I'm not putting myself out there on a limb uh, to be attacked uh, uh, for uh, trying to indoctrinate our troops. And the disgrace of Walker allowed many, many commanders to revert to their original opinion, uh, which was, hey, I never thought this indoctrination stuff was going to work anyway. Uh, it's all nonsense. Let me get back to training my troops. You know, the way they ought to be trained. Uh, I'm not up here to give political lessons. So what you have from the Army is, is saying a reaffirmation of our apolitical tradition. So we're not going to tell you why we're in Vietnam. We're not going to you know, make that a centerpiece of, of your training. The Pentagon can't really respond in anything other than these 1950s terms, the, the encroachment of, of communism as this constant threat and that there's constant communist subversion at home uh, that the troops ought to be concerned about. What goes missing in these two disparate kind of, kind of impulses is a realistic attempt to orient soldiers sent to Vietnam as to the local conditions in Vietnam. This mission is, is not entirely abandoned, but it's definitely deprioritized. Uh, and I would argue much to the detriment of, uh, uh, of American troops. Um, you can't necessarily claim that a more, a better uh, indoctrination effort w uh, would have uh, made the United States much more militarily effective in Vietnam than it was. Uh, but I, I would argue that you have the responsibility to try, uh, at any rate, uh, uh, to give the soldiers on the ground uh, as much as uh, as, as many tools as they can uh, to cope with, uh, you know, what we now call an anti, anti a counterinsurgency war. And those tools were really not forthcoming uh, in Vietnam because the army wasn't interested uh, in, in politicizing itself, and uh, uh, the Pentagon could only think in terms of, of, uh, of, of big geopolitical issues. Uh, 
Um, after Vietnam, it, it's pretty much gone. Uh, it uh, begins to concentrate solely on those sorts of issues that were at one point um, uh, only a minor part of, of the morale effort that I mentioned before in World War II, uh, in particular helping soldiers uh, navigate the bureaucracy, uh, informing them of important dates and forms and such, uh, making available to them absentee ballots, but not really pushing them, uh, and um, addressing questions of race relations and drug use and abuse. Uh, after the war, there was a doubling down on the idea of of trying to help soldiers with their lives uh, rather than preaching at them uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, one response, perhaps a cynical one, uh, it, uh, it's been detailed by, by some social scientists, uh, that the Army, instead of trying to confront soldiers politically uh, and uh, say, whatever your political objections are, this is how we argue against them, instead began to say, well, we, we should just deal with soldiers' disaffections by transferring them, you know, letting them wear their hair longer, or having ice cream twice a week, uh, you know, or, or something to that effect. Basically, saying we won't meet, you know, you on the political battlefield. Uh, we'll just try to adjust your circumstances so we, we don't, you know, don't hear as many complaints out of you. So, what happens to the army's political indoctrination program? And I don't know what your impression is of, of what we're doing today, uh, uh, but you know, since we moved to the all-volunteer force, uh, that was what I've just described was, was sort of the, the way to go for about the first ten years. Uh, eventually, when you get into a series of conflicts, there, there is some you know always recognition that you need some area orientation training. You know that you need to be able to tell people something about where they're going. And what I've seen typically you know these days is is powerpoints with a lot of flowcharts. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing quite as inspiring as a PowerPoint presentation. Well, I don't think they're that in emotionally inspirational. Oh, don't I know it. <laughs> so tell us, Chris, what's next? Um, where do you go from here? Well, um, what I'd like to do next, and uh, uh, I have some time to work on it right now, so I'm very excited about it, is uh, I'm trying to write a, uh, a a political and social history of Reconstruction era soldiers, particularly soldiers who are still in, in U.S. uniform uh, serving in the South uh, during the occupation uh, and you know sort of scanty occupation of the South uh, up to uh, 1877. At various times, you had between 100,000 troops and 10,000 troops uh, in over this vast area, and uh, the anti-Reconstruction forces are generally very careful not to engage them, uh, not to provoke federal troops. Because those federal troops lacked cavalry units uh, with which they could go around and chase the Ku Klux Klan, uh, they, they tended to have uh, any mission that, that they might execute uh, be a rather frustrating one. Uh, what I'm curious about, uh, though, is uh, once again returning to the nexus of politics and, uh, and individual soldiers. How do they regard that mission? Um, uh, to what degree did, did were soldiers as, as frustrated as, as I you know, suspect that they were? Uh, or to what degree 
are they just trying to get along in the South? To uh, uh, are they more uh, sort of naturally sympathetic? Uh, to uh, the disenfranchised uh, 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 African Americans uh, who are uh, uh, struggling to realize the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, and their uh, uh, Republican allies, uh, or are they uh, more sympathetic perhaps to the dispossessed uh, of the war, uh, which would include many white Democrats uh, as well? And uh, uh, a history of their interactions, and especially in the culminating uh, campaign against the Klan in 1871, is what I'm hoping to uh, to be able to to really get my teeth into. No, that sounds good, Chris. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you. It's a, I, I hope it's a, uh, as fun as, as this last one, which was really fun to talk about uh, with you uh, again. And uh, you know, not only thanks for inviting me, but thanks to uh, to, to anyone who's who's uh, listened to this. Uh, it's very kind of you. Thank you for joining us, Chris. You've been listening to our interview with Christopher DeRosa, author of the book Political Indoctrination in the U.S. Army from World War II to the Vietnam War. This is your host, Bob Winterly. For new books of military history, thank you for listening.